Space is the worst. It's got hostile radiation, a total lack of atmosphere, near absolute zero temperatures, problematic gravity wells, and worse, no extension cords. In order to keep your spacecraft alive in that environment, you'll need electricity to keep it warm, not to mention all the power to run scientific instruments and the transmitters to send that data home. Getting enough power in space is a big problem. There are three ways of generating power in space. Solar panels, radioisotope thermoelectric generators, and nuclear fission reactors. Each have their pros and cons. Let's start with solar panels. Now this technology has been around for decades and works by using photons from the sun to knock electrons free from atoms. Those electrons are harvested and provide electricity for a spacecraft to operate. Solar panels need to be big to supply usable energy to a spacecraft. The International Space Station's eight solar arrays contain thousands of solar cells and take up an area half the size of a football field. Its arrays can produce up to 120,000 watts of energy, enough to power 40 homes. Solar panels designed to fly in space are much more expensive than ground-based panels because weight and volume on the spacecraft are at a premium. They use high efficiency cells. Space agencies have pioneered many of the technologies used in solar panels. The European Space Agency recently announced that they enabled a very thin solar cell, just 0.1 millimeters thick, that provides 30% efficiency by sandwiching together four different layers of materials and can absorb wider wavelengths of sunlight. The most efficient panels on the market today only convert about 22.5%, and most are in the 15 to 17% range. NASA's Opportunity rover set down on the surface of Mars back in January 2004. It's now spent more than 5,000 days exploring the red planet, searching for evidence of past water. At night, Opportunity experiences temperatures that go as low as minus 105 Celsius. No matter what happens, Opportunity always needs to keep its batteries above minus 20 Celsius when they're supplying power to the rover and zero Celsius when they're recharging. In order to keep its electronics warm, Opportunity has eight tiny pellets of decaying plutonium, as well as electrical heaters. If Opportunity can't get at least enough electricity to keep its batteries warm, it can't recharge and it'll die. In the best conditions, its solar panels generate about 140 watts during the Martian day. It needs about 100 watts if it needs to drive anywhere. Dust falling on the solar panels was expected to reduce its power to below what it needed to keep operating within a couple of years. But surprisingly, dust devils have cleaned off the panels and allowed it to keep going. Eventually, its batteries will run out, it won't be able to keep itself warm enough on the bitterly cold Martian night, and the rover will be lost for good. Solar panels like this are equipped on many spacecraft throughout the inner solar system where enough radiation from the sun can be captured and used to power instruments, heaters, and even ion engines. While the solar energy at Earth is about 1300 watts per square meter, the intensity drops to 125th or 50 watts per square meter by the time you get to Jupiter. And this is all thanks to the inverse square law, where the intensity at any distance is equal to the inverse square of that distance. 
This is why NASA's Juno spacecraft is such a feat of power engineering. The spacecraft is equipped with three solar panel arrays, nine meters long, covered with 18,698 separate solar cells. If Juno was at Earth, it would be able to generate 14,000 watts of electricity, but out of Jupiter, it can only generate 500 watts. This has given Juno the electricity it needs to run all its science experiments, not to mention capturing these amazing images of Jupiter when it orbits the planet every two weeks. But Juno is the first spacecraft to ever get this far from the sun using solar panels. The previous eight spacecraft that ever got this far out have used radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Let's go out to the edge of the solar system, to NASA's twin Voyager spacecraft. In order to just communicate with these probes from Earth, signals need to travel for almost 20 hours, moving at the speed of light. The Voyagers have the same problem as Opportunity. They need to keep themselves warm, but they're much farther from the sun. And they need to have enough power to run their science instruments and transmit their discoveries back to Earth. Each Voyager is equipped with three radioisotope thermoelectric generators, or RTGs, which are really just a chunk of plutonium-238, which is slowly decaying. This decay releases alpha particles, which bombard the surface of their container, heating it up, and this heat energy is converted into electricity. At the beginning of the mission, the three RTGs supplied each Voyager with 470 watts of electrical power. The RTGs on board the Voyagers have been running for over 40 years now, but the amount of usable heat is steadily decreasing. And it's expected that they'll get so low within the next decade that the spacecraft won't be able to power up their transmitters any longer. RTGs provide ample power deep out in space, but they come with their own set of problems. The first is the fact that they require a dangerous element like plutonium, strontium, or polonium. They're highly radioactive and dangerous if they get released into the environment. In fact, this was one of the reasons Cassini was crashed into Saturn, to minimize the chances that its RTGs could harm life on one of its icy moons, not to mention infecting it with its Earth bacteria. The other problem is that RTGs release radioactive particles that can interfere with the spacecraft's electronics, adding unnecessary noise to its data gathering. And for this reason, the RTGs are usually mounted on a boom, far away from the spacecraft and its instruments. The Voyagers used a type of generator called the multi-hundred watt radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Newer spacecraft like Galileo, Cassini, and New Horizons used a modified design called the General Purpose Heat Source, which could generate about 300 watts of power using 7.8 kilograms of plutonium-238. Space missions built after 2010, like NASA's Curiosity, use multi-mission RTGs, and their heat source is plutonium-238 dioxide, generating 125 watts at the beginning of their mission and falling to 100 watts after 14 years. After the end of the Cold War, the US stopped producing plutonium-238 and ironically had to start buying the material from Russia. And then Russia stopped making it too. With a dwindling supply, the US Department of Energy actually banned NASA from including thermal RTGs in many missions. And this limited the amount of power that they could produce and pretty much ended science for the outer solar system. 
Earlier this year, though, NASA announced that the ban was over and upcoming mission proposals for 2018 and beyond could include up to two multi-mission RTGs on a spacecraft. Solar panels and decaying radioactive materials? Is there anything else out there to supply power to a spacecraft? There's one more, nuclear fission reactors. And we'll get to them in a second, but first I'd like to thank Midley, Curious Borg, Vatislav Kravtov, Chushant Aurora, William Abedet, Frank Walker, Ailet Avron, and the rest of our 812 patrons for their generous support. If you love what we're doing, you want to get in on the action, head over to patreon.com slash universe today. We've talked about solar panels and nuclear batteries, but did you know that there are more than 30 spacecraft launched with nuclear fission reactors? One from the US and the rest from the Soviet Union. Space-based nuclear fission reactors are similar to the kinds of reactors used down here on the surface to supply electricity. They use uranium-235 as a fuel for a fission reaction where the nucleus is split, releasing energy. A kilogram of uranium can provide as much energy as 3 million kilograms of burning coal. The United States launched their SNAP-10A spacecraft in 1965 and it operated for 43 days before it stopped functioning. It's now in a slowly deteriorating orbit that'll take another 3,000 years or so before it crashes back to Earth. Don't worry, its nuclear material should be largely decayed by then. During the space race, the Soviets equipped 31 of their Rorsat reconnaissance satellites with the BES-5 fission reactors. And these could generate 3,000 watts of usable electricity. And they also equipped two Topaz satellites that could produce 5,000 watts of electricity. The Soviets had a few mishaps though, and in 1977, they launched their Cosmos 954 spy satellite, which had one of these BES-5 fission reactors on board with 50 kilograms of uranium-235. The spacecraft suffered a series of malfunctions and they lost control of it. Soviet officials assured the world that the spacecraft would burn up in the atmosphere or hold together when it crashed into the ground. Because it had been launched into an extreme 65-degree orbital inclination, it had the potential to crash into almost any population center across the world. When it came down in 1977, the reactor came apart almost immediately as it struck the atmosphere, coating itself in radioactive material. And then it broke up into large chunks which fell to Earth over a 600-kilometer track in Canada's Northwest Territories. Canada was only able to find, clean up, and dispose of about 1% of the radioactive spacecraft chunks. The rest is still out there. Fortunately, none of the other fission reactors are expected to return to Earth anytime soon. Like SNAP-10A, they'll take hundreds or thousands of years to re-enter the atmosphere. Considering the dangers, no space agencies have launched spacecraft with fission reactors in over 30 years but it looks like the technology might return again soon. NASA recently announced that they're working on a new space-based fission reactor technology called Kilopower. And they held a press conference in May 2018 announcing that they completed their ground tests of this new fission reactor that could supply 1,000 watts of electrical energy and then up to 10,000 watts for installations on the moon, Mars, or even for use in spacecraft. The reactor consists of an enriched uranium core that's undergoing fission decay. Heat pipes extend out from the reactor and connect to Stirling engines which convert the heat into electrical energy. The whole system is self-regulating. 
If the reactor overheats, the engines can draw off more power to cool it back down, and if it's too cool, the core contracts, increasing the rate of fission again. With the ground tests complete this year, NASA's next step is to test them in space. And if all goes well, future Moon or Mars explorers will have all the power they'll need to survive on other worlds, run their science experiments, and transmit the results back home. NASA also thinks they could install these kilopower reactors onto spacecraft that use ion engines, providing the electricity they would need for extended missions. Solar panels, RTGs, and fission reactors are the three methods that space agencies have used to power the spacecraft. And who knows, as new technologies are perfected down here on Earth, like fusion reactors, maybe someday we'll see those implemented in space too. Until then, getting anything done, especially anywhere far from the sun, is going to be incredibly difficult and slow. Like I said, space is the worst. Have you got any ideas for space-based power systems? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. Once a week, I gather up all my space news into a single email newsletter and send it out. It's got pictures, brief highlights about the story, and links so you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com newsletter to sign up. And now, here's the playlist.